Thank you so much, Deacon Brian, and all our musicians and our singers for serving us faithfully week by week. On behalf of all of us here at ARPC, we give you thanks. Uh, we give thanks to God and thank you for joining us in our services and pray that you'll be blessed because we are hearing the Word of God speak to us the will of God. Today, this passage is about marriages. So let's begin with things that we say at weddings that start off marriages. And very often in the weddings, and we've done, by God's grace, quite a few over the years here, what happens when you put two similar people together in marriage? What happens when you put two doctors or a doctor and a nurse together in marriage? You could say you could have a very hygienic and healthy marriage. What happens when you put two lawyers together in marriage? You could say we could, you could have a very exacting uh, marriage because each will be so precise with their thoughts and their arguments. What happens when you put two accountants together? You could say that they'll end up with a very calculating union. At times though, opposites attract. So what happens when you put two very different people together in marriage? And so what happens when you put an introvert together with an extrovert? Do not know. What happens when you put two people with different bio clocks together? One is a night owl. They only start to wake up and be fully alert at about 10 p.m. at night. And they are most alert about 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And then you marry, you so happen to choose and to marry somebody who is an early bird who rises at 5 a.m. to get ready for their walk or their run or their swim. What happens there? There'll be a clash of bio clocks. What happens when you put a believer and unbeliever together in marriage. And that's the issue that Peter wants to address here. And so we have explored First Peter, and the main theme that jumps at us is this. That's all about us living as aliens and strangers in a fallen world. And Peter tells us that we live such strange lives because we don't really belong here. We belong to God by belonging to Jesus. We are believers in the Lord Jesus. And yet, while here, we have duties and ministries. And so, we entitled today's message, Strange Marriages. And why is it Christians have strange marriages? Because you have the call, God's call, for wives to be submissive and for husbands to be understanding, to be loving, to act so differently to their culture of that time. And this was written 2,000 years ago. And so it begins this way. Yep, the Bible passage comes on. Say this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word. But the conduct of their wives when they see you're respectful, and the word, the root word there in the Greek is actually fear, translated in some versions, your reverent behavior and your pure behavior, pure conduct. To really understand what Peter is saying here in regards to how if we put Jesus into the life of wives, if we bring Jesus into the hearts of husbands, will it change anything? And Peter's 
um, exhortation, yes. Bringing Jesus into the heart of Christian wives and Christian husbands changes everything in their hearts, in their behaviour, in their relationship. But to really understand God's call to submission, here is the big picture. In chapter 2, citizens are called to submit to all authorities. Slaves are, submit, are called to submit to their masters. And here, wives are called to submit to their husbands. The same word is used in each of them. And then in chapter 5, young men are called to submit to older men. Which tells you, as you look at this, one of the main themes in First Peter. What is one of the main themes? As we live here as the alien, estranged people of God in a fallen world, in a broken world, in a sinful world, what will be the standout attitude and the standout behaviour of God's people? God's people are called to submission. So submission should characterise the life of Jesus' people. Jesus' believers and Jesus' followers, not rebellion. Because think about it. Before you came to know God, before you came to know Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord, before you were born again into a living hope, into an inheritance that can never, that is imperishable, unblemished and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Before we became the children of God, we were children of the world. What characterized your life? The chances are very high. Before you came to know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, your life was characterized by rebellion. Nobody have had to teach you as a young child of three years old, five years old, nobody had to teach you as a teenager of 13 years old to rebel against your God-given parents. Did anybody teach you rebellion? No. It's there in your DNA, in our DNA, in our fallenness. And so any fool can be rebellious towards parents. Any fool can be rebellious towards teachers in school, towards your principal. Any fool can be rebellious towards your bosses. Any fool can be... All you've got to do is to be a sinner. To be a sinner marks you out as rebellious. But once you cross over by surrendering your life to Jesus, from that positional holiness to your progressive holiness, submission should increasingly be the character of your life. So any fool, any sinner, any rebel can be characterized by rebellion. But only a believer in Jesus can walk the path. See, to rebel is to walk the path of least resistance. Don't need any help. Don't need for, to go to any courses or tutoring in this. But you need all of God's help by His Word, through His Spirit, as you follow Jesus, the path of the greatest resistance which is to submit to all authorities in all areas of life. And here is the call, and that's important to understand. So why should we as believers in Jesus, why should we, be, uh, why should we as followers of Jesus embrace submission and suffering, unjust suffering? He gives you three reasons in chapter 2 that you must factor in submission as a follower of Jesus, you know what factor in is? Factor. When you go to school, you must factor in what? Your parents teach you what? When you, when you invest in the market out there, the, the people in the financial sector, you've got to factor in. So we're factoring the risk of COVID-19. 
We're factored in this. We're factored. And so it doesn't cause so much market volatility. For the Christian life, the number one thing you've got to factor in is submission. And as you submit, it won't turn out what we call honky-dory. It might not turn out to be a bed of roses. As we submit to God-given authorities in a fallen world, we may have to experience unjust suffering. And so we factor in and get ourselves ready. Submission, why? Submission bears witness to God. Submission pleases God. It fulfills God's will. And last but not least, the third reason of why we should embrace and factor in submission into our lives is submission imitates Jesus. This is the imitation of Jesus. And though he submitted himself to authorities, to the Jewish authorities and then the Roman authorities, both authorities conspired to put him to death. But he endured. He kept going with his submission. He kept going to it with submission. He never turned back. He never did a U-turn. He kept going until he laid his life down on the cross. Once you have the bigger picture of why Peter says that living in a fallen world, living with sinful people, living in a broken world, that submission to God is vitally important as part of our Christian life. Only then can you understand what he says to wives in regards to their relationship to husbands. So the context of the relationship here, the marriage relationship, it's not a, this is not a passage for us to go and flirt to convert because it speaks about a Christian wife and a non-Christian husband. In all likelihood, they were married and the wives got converted. And it's not that the majority of them married, uh, the majority of them faced majority non-Christian husbands. Even if, if some of you have husbands who do not obey the word. So the most likely scenario was this. The wife was converted. The husbands are unbeliever, even if, and so if there's some of them, a minority of them, who do not obey the word, the question that they would have grappled with was this. Well, what's the question? So if I find myself in this situation, do I stay in this unequally yoked marriage or do I leave? And Peter's answer, inspired by God, sitting under God, is stay. But don't just stay and tolerate. And in Malay here, just tahan. You stay and you pray to submit, even to your husbands who do not obey the word of God. So that's what he calls them to. But why submit? So that your husbands may be won over. This word is used a few times, this won over word. And when you go and read it in Matthew chapter 8, verse 15, 18, 15, there's a typo there. Three times, uh, five times it's used in 1 Corinthians. It, is, it, it carries the tone of salvation. Keep somebody in their salvation. Your burden and wives should do this because they should be increasingly concerned and burdened with their unbelieving husband's salvation. About transferring them from what? Transferring them from their realm of disobedience to God to obedience to God. And that's what Peter writes about in chapter 1, that 
the Spirit's work is to lead us for obedience to Jesus Christ as we preach the gospel. And so, this is what they have to do, stay in the marriages. Why must they stay? It is to submit. And why must they submit? Their highest reason to stay and to submit to their non-believing husbands is so that in some way, they may be used by God as a channel, as an instrument, as a vessel to win over their unbelieving husbands. But how to submit to do this? And he says, you should try to win them over without a word. And we don't understand this. Um, maybe a way to paraphrase this is, Christian wives, Christian wives, this is what you must never do. You must never talk your husband into the kingdom. You must never argue your husband into the kingdom. The last thing you got to do is never nag your husbands into the kingdom. If you talk your husbands, you argue your husbands, you fight your husbands, you nag your husbands into the kingdom, they will be repelled. You'll be repulsive. You essentially show them into the kingdom. How? A possible meaning of the word. But the reverence of your life, you live in reverence of God, in fear of God. And when they see your changed heart expressed in your changed behavior, they can't see your changed heart, but they can see your changed behavior. And so I've told this story how many times? Right? Well, I was at Bible college and every year we go out on a college mission and for a week we are out there being trained as Bible college students, would-be pastors, would-be future missionaries, full-time gospel workers. It's just full-on cold turkey evangelism. So I studied in Sydney. They would take us out to a suburb and we go to a local church and in partnership with the local church, we as rookie students in first year, second year, third year, will do all the, the scary things. Cold turkey, knocking on people's door. Hello, sir. Can I, uh, can I come in and just have a coffee with you and chat with you about... Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. Would you like to come? We are organizing a, a dinner at, at the local church. Hello, sir. And so we invited people to come for a service. And at service, we as students had to put up a skit and then present the gospel. Right. And after that, uh, no, before we actually did that, I actually asked one of the people that we met before the service started, an Australian man, so why have you come? Uh, what brought you here? So I came because uh, my wife, who used to quarrel with me about everything, totally changed. And I wanted to know what happened to her. Because she stopped nagging me, she stopped arguing with me, she stopped being petty with me. And so I came to investigate what is it that she has come to believe in. We never nag our non-Christian husbands into the kingdom. And we show them into the kingdom. Doesn't mean we never speak about this because there's a very huge theme in First Peter. And what's the huge theme in First Peter? When he's teaching them, exhorting them to make sense out of the increasing nonsense that they were increasingly slandered, they were increasingly maligned as God's people. All that verbal trauma that they were experiencing, you walk out there and people swear at you, you walk out there and people curse at you, and just simply because they realize you believe in Jesus and you say that Jesus is the only way. Not like they all believe. There are many ways to God in the Roman Empire. There are many temples in every local city. So wherever they were, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, that was the, the common belief. But once you come to believe in Jesus, 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one gives you living hope, new birth to a living hope. Nobody gives you inheritance. Nobody transfers you from being children of the world to children of God, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The singularity of Jesus, the distinctiveness of Jesus, is Jesus and Jesus alone might make you stand out like a sotam in a world full of relativity. All roads lead to, not Rome, all roads lead to heaven. You have your idea about God, I have my idea of God, you have your idea of this, I have my idea of that. And he says, to make sense out of the nonsense, in chapter 2, we come to believe in this God. We are now a chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And God did this to us, and the Old Testament pattern from Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 to 5, now even you are the people of God. You are to declare, to proclaim God's excellencies. How? By lives and lips, by lives and lips. By living such good lives and doing such good works, which would include public benefaction. This is God's show and tell gospel. And so you've got to show that you submit to authorities. You don't just hide it in your heart and then grumble with your lips. You've got to show it, he tells the wife. And so this is the consistent message. So how are they going to show and tell this gospel to their non-Christian husbands? He goes on. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of, your, of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And all that he says here is so important. So he's contrasting the world's standards, the world's markers and characteristics, the world's expectation, the world's measure of women and wives, contrasted with God's mark, God's characteristics, God's standards, and God's measure of Christian women and especially Christian wives in marriages. The world's measure of women, the world's measure of wives, is... We judge them by their braided hair, by their jewellery, by their clothing. And every culture has always done this. We measure and we treasure women by body and beauty. We measure and we treasure girls and then women and their wives by body and beauty. And now as you listen to the gospel and listen to the specific instruction of the Apostle Peter to wives, Christian wives in unequally yoked marriages, you've got to change your view and your values. You've got to really do a U-turn on this. Now, misapplication of this passage would move along these lines. And we are sorry that through time, through church history, some people who read the Bible in a straight-jacket way, in a flat-earth reading of Scripture, May, we may have mis mistaken applications for Christian wives and women. And the mistaken application for Christian wives and women, Christian wives and women should do their best to look their dowdiest. If you don't know that word, just Google it. To look their ugliest, 
Your role as a Christian wife is to turn your husband off. He can't be saying that. Because he's saying you've got to do everything to turn him on. But how you turn him on now is quite different to just beauty and body. And the second mistaken understanding is that the plainest women are the godliest women. The godliest women are the plainest women. And Christian women cannot wear makeup. Christian women cannot wear jewellery. But if you read carefully, he says, you know, not with braided hair, not with gold jewellery. And it's a misapplication. You shouldn't wear clothes. He's not saying that, of course. You could mistake it. You could mistake the application here. And we now legislate for women's dressing. A Christian women cannot do, cannot wear all these things. Those are mistaken understandings and mistaken applications. The right understanding in context, it's about two ways to make women attractive to men in marriage. That wives become attractive to husbands. You got a world's way to make wives attractive, and you got God's way to make wives attractive. The world's way to make women generally and wives specifically attractive to men is be dolled up, be as dolled up. And the scripture says, and Paul will say this in First Peter also, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, don't be dolled up by the world's value of external beauty. For when you put a disproportionate amount of your time and energy into being, into body and beauty to be dolled up, it actually devalues you. And friends, listen to this carefully in a modern day world. Isn't there a lot of this now for our children, for our daughters, for our women? It's all about body shape and body size. And now the in-body size is as, as slim as possible, as skinny as possible, then another time as, as curvy as possible. So poor women, you have to doll yourselves up according to the fashion of that time. It's all about your body shape. That your, secure, your identity and security bobs up and down according to what the fashion, fashionatas of this world tell you is acceptable of you as a young girl. And fashion houses know how to sell these friends. There's a lot of sexualization of our children. That from young, they exist to win beauty contests. That from young, girls exist to show off as much flesh so that men will be turned on and attracted to them. You don't find that in Scripture. And so we have to choose to listen very carefully whether we want to be dolled up with the world's values or dolled up with God's values. If we continue with the world's values, women generally, wives, you will always be treated and treasured as goods and services. You will never be loved as a person. And in many, many cultures, which included that culture at that time, women were treated as goods and services to be only to be seen only in kitchens and to be there in the bedrooms. Whereas we, as Christian folk, are to treat our wives as persons to be loved. And soon we're going to find out about that in verse 7. But if you dress yourself and adorn yourself with God's values, 
you focus on a gentle and a quiet spirit. And three times this word is used, twice in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentle or meek. Gentle or meek means you're not insistent on your rights. You're not pushy. You're not selfishly assertive. You're not demanding your way all of the time, most of the time. That that is not your character. Previously, that was your character as a fallen woman, as a sinful woman, as a child of the world, insistent on your rights, pushy, selfishly assertive, demanding your own way. But now that you've come to believe in Jesus and come to follow Him, you must now go on the path of gentleness. So God's forever fashion for women, for wives, is an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is, in God's sight, very precious. This is how Christian wives make themselves truly attractive to their husbands, beginning with non-Christian husbands. Right? This is how we do it. This is how we turn the man on, not with external beauty and body, but with internal qualities of gentleness, meekness, not insistence, not pushy, not quarrelsome, not petty, then you become attractive to your men, to your husbands, because this is beautiful in God's sight. And then as you teach this, okay, I know what to do now. If I'm a Christian wife, you may be saying this. This is what I have to do. I have to be submissive. This is why I do it, to win them over. This is how I do it, by focusing on a gentle and a quiet spirit. But this calling is so high this calling to be holy, this calling to be, to proclaim the excellencies of God in this way seems such a high calling, seems, un, seems unreachable for me. Guess what Peter does? This is what he does. He gives you examples. It's a high calling, but this is not impossible because there has been a story about this, a history about this, because the women of the Old Testament, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. You see the word three times? It's all about adorning this, this portion. How you dress yourself. You want to dress yourself as the world dresses itself to make ourselves as women attractive to men or you want to dress yourself God's way. So you adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are our children. If you do good, Notice, do good, visible good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he holds up, firstly, a group, the holy women of who hoped in God, hoping God, trusted in God, had faith in God. So it was from their quiet trust in God that flowed this kind of submission, that flowed this kind of action. The holy women, a group. Then he pulls up one person, Sarah. In her relationship with God, she hoped in God, she submitted to him, and she expressed her submission to Abraham by obedience to him and calling him Lord. I'm going to practice this verse with Mona, my wife, tonight and ask her to call me Lord. I have a feeling I might be sleeping on the couch. Don't you think so? 
Because submission is a very misunderstood concept in, the, in our modern day world. Submission carries all the connotation of inferiority. Submission carries all the mistaken ideas of patriarchy. It carries all the connotations of abuse. But submission is not a negative word. It's not a negative concept. If you move just backwards to chapter 2, that submission is positive. It's not pejorative. It's not negative. Because the epitome, the model, the perfection of submission is Jesus submitting himself to the Father. And every authority instituted, even if it meant death on the cross. And so, what do we learn from the holy women of the past? And what do we learn from the specific example of Sarah in her relationship to Abraham? What we learn from them is this. The acquired trust in God liberated them. It's faith in God that gives us true liberation. The acquired faith in God liberated them to submit and not be fearful of their husbands and fearful of their circumstances. It's so different, right? It's so different to what? It's so different to one of the most powerful philosophies, one of the most powerful isms, feminism. Feminism says liberation is actually freedom from God, freedom from religion. It's all this faith in God business that has, that has really handicapped women and made us victims. Yes, there's a sad history of that. But as you listen to this, to, to God speak His word through First Peter, understand this. Feminism says liberation from God, freedom from God, leads you to fullness of life. But Biblicism says faith in God gives you true freedom and true fullness. It unleashes you and empowers you to submit to your husbands and not to be fearful of him and his actions. So how might that work out for us now in terms of our obedience? As you listen to this first six verses in First Peter, what does it mean to live as the estranged people of God in a fallen world? Maybe here are two obedience things to work out. So if you are Christian woman, Christian wife, you have to sort out what is your main dressing or adornment. Whether you want to pour time and energy to keep working on your true beauty and your eternal security that comes from a gentle and quiet spirit. Are you going to listen to God? To not put so much time and effort, a disproportionate amount of time and effort into the externalities, into the cosmetics and work on the internals? a gentle and quiet spirit, not to be petty, not to be quarrelsome, not to be pushy, not to be irritating to your God-given husbands? Or are you still going to pour a lot of time, a disproportionate amount of time and energy on working on the fake security of your external beauty? And the choice comes down to whether you want to choose God's instruction about His adornment or whether you want to go on with the world's very powerful thing that is your body shape and your body weight is your beauty and your body that will give you your true identity and security. You've got to sort out your highest duty 
if you are already in this situation, that you're married to an unbeliever. You're going to sort out whether your highest duty and your greatest desire, whether your deepest security is making, is attracting your husband to yourself by your efforts of external beauty, or your highest duty is to attract him to Christ. The two things are different. If your highest duty and your deepest security is found in attracting your husband to you, that his eyes will not rove, his eyes, his heart will not stray. So you've got to keep yourself being beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But guess what? You've got a bio-clock. Everybody says bio-clock. And all those anti-aging cream, by the time you come to your 60s, you realise, doesn't work lah. Doesn't work. Some younger woman is going to come up and take his eyes and make his heart stray. Or you're going to work on that inner beauty that is ultimately attractive. That though the wrinkles come and though the external beauty fade, there's something irresistible about a Christian wife who works hard and becoming like her Lord. That's true beauty. That's beautiful to God and attractive to Christian men. Amen? And I came across this, I forget the title of the book. Somebody did a research and wrote a book about it. A hundred years of studying, surveying women in America. In the previous generation, the main focus of the previous generation was nurturing young girls to be women, nurturing them to do good, to live such good lives. And America for many years was very Christian. It's turned. And even the Christianity now is really questionable in some circles. But today, in that research of a hundred years, the main focus is not nurturing young girls and women to do good, to be good, as they believe in God, but to look good. Isn't it a paradigm shift? A huge paradigm shift, a sea of change, that a whole generation of 50 years spend their time and energy as parents, spend our time and energy as churches, nurturing our daughters and our women to live good lives, godly lives. But now the challenge of feminism, the challenge of the isms of this world is just look good. And instantaneous images on Google, on the internet, on social media. And once you don't conform to that image, you take a blow, you take a hit to your self-worth. This word that was written 2,000 years ago is still the living and enduring word of God. And we must hunger and thirst for it. We must crave for it. We don't just read this as a passing lesson. So, we move on. What about men? And some people very cheekily said, hey, it would seem that Peter thinks that women is a struggle a lot more. He gives six verses to women, no? but men only got one verse. That men learn easier. You can't judge the focus of this, the weight of this, or the problem of this, 
by the number of verses given to wives and to husbands. In one verse, the lessons are still as salient and still as important. Likewise, husbands, you live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so it says in the English Standard Version, live with, with your wives with understanding. Right? In the NIV, it actually says this. Let me read the NIV, the New International Version. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. So, is it understanding, ESV, or live with your wives with consideration? Consideration that the New International Version leans more towards here is an um, interpretation of it rather than a translation of it. Because the actual Greek word is you live, we are to live with our wives with knowledge. It's according to knowledge. Dwelling with our God-given wives according to gnosis. And so understanding is more accurate than consideration. Just in case Christians' husbands understand, oh, all I need to do, um, I just need to be considerate a mona. That's not his main meaning. What is this knowledge? And some scholars say the possibilities of this knowledge run along these lines. I live with my wife according to the knowledge of God, according to the knowledge of God's Word, and what God tells me about Himself and about us made in His image. And what God tells me in His Word about the purpose of marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The sanctity and the permanence of marriage. Or could it be a knowledge of women generally? Because there is some truth that the men of 2,000 years ago wasn't expected by their culture to be understanding of women. Because women were treated as inferior. They just need to be treated as goods and services, not as persons to be loved, persons to be understood. Or could it be knowledge of your wife particularly? It could have, in descending order, once you have a knowledge of God, God's word, God's purpose for marriage, for family, you have a knowledge of women, you become countercultural. You turn from the cultural values of marriage, of women, and of your wife particularly. So if this is perhaps a valid interpretation, then how does he want us to do this? His exhortation now gets a little bit more dangerous. And why does it get more dangerous? Because Peter goes on to say, we are now to honour our wives, Christian husbands, we are to honour our wives as the weaker vessel. And immediately as you hear that, what on earth does he mean by weaker in our 21st century world? And here are a few possibilities. That the way God made us, created us, wired us, is that women could be physically weaker than men. And generally that could be true. Or weaker in authority because God is designed, we are equal in creation, but differentiated in role and a man is the head of the marriage and the head of the family. And, and notice, this is not weaker in power, weaker in authority. And if man is the head of the family, 
Authority is not simply a power. It's not simply power. Authority is actually responsibility. Authority is actually ministry. That you, the buck stops here if the marriage goes wrong. And go back to Genesis chapter 3. That though Eve listened to the serpent, when God confronted, he confronted Adam and asked him, what on earth happened here? Because authority is responsibility. And responsibility is accountability. Or could it be the, that women are weaker in the way they are wired? That they are, they tend, they're more knit, tightly bound in head, mentally, emotionally, in every way. And in that way could be so easily hurt. Don't know. I read a whole string of scholars. Uh, could be that. Could be that. And so, what does that mean for us? Whatever we do not know, this must be the meaning. Women are weaker, and the weaker vessels, not for them to be abused by us, but for them to be loved by us, for them to be honoured and dignified by us. And the dignity of women in the ancient world 2,000 years ago was a non-existent thing. And women are to be treasured with greater care. So we honour our wives as Christian husbands. And maybe a way to understand it, this is how many syllables, the femininity. How many syllables is that? The femininity. The femaleness of women is to bring out the maleness of men. And basically, is he saying this? That Christian men, if we believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, if we live under the authority of Jesus, it is to do this. Do what? Do this. Can see? The red thing? Handle with care. Handle with care. And so this is something that... This is something that we bought and not opened yet because we haven't found the time and haven't found the space in our own place to put up this Christian ornament that we got, um, we were attracted to in one of our overseas travels. Whatever I do not know as a Christian husband, if that is true, then I handle my God-given wife with care as the weaker vessel. She's not weaker for, for us to misuse them, abuse them, take advantage of them, shove them around, push them around. Physically, verbally, mentally, handle with care. I'll never forget, I drove all the way to our hometown to propose, uh, to ask for my future father-in-law to give his consent uh, for me to marry Mona. He, of course, said, yes, who would say no? But then he took me for a drive, just men to men. I asked him, uh, in front of him and my future mother-in-law, and they both said yes. They were expecting that, that I would come all the way to ask for their permission. And for all who are dating, all the guys, this is still a very godly thing to do. Don't just assume that the girl you are dating after three years, after five years, sure will say yes to you, must say yes to you. Please ask her first. Pray and then ask her. And please don't forget to ask her parents. There, there are things that are built in. We are wired for this. There's authority built in there. And so uh, he took me for a drive. And basically I told him after getting married, within six months or so, 
I was going to train in Bible college. I'm going to give up my job and uh, go and train. And he just asked questions along the line. Why do you and Mona want to give up your jobs? You, you went to study. We, we, you know, as parents paid so much for you to go overseas to study. And now you want to give up your job and you want to work in church. He wasn't a Christian at the time, my father-in-law. And he says, why do you want to work for charity? Depend on charity. You can earn your own living. Then I tried to explain a bit more. Then he basically just said this. I don't really understand this, but uh, I only ask for one thing that you, you look after her and you give her three square meals a day. Lah. Right? So the joke between Mona is that I've given her three square meals, she now looks round. What do you think my future father-in-law was saying to me in that long drive after I proposed and asked, proposed to my, my girlfriend then and asked for their permission as her parents? He was saying in paraphrase, when I say yes, I'm handing, I'm handing my daughter completely into your care and you jolly well look after her. In not so many words. That's when you feel the weight. I now not just have to be responsible to look after me, I'm firstly responsible to look after my God-given wife. She's precious. We handle her with care as the weaker vessel. So why must we treat our God-given wives like this? Because Peter goes on to say this, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So on the one hand, they are weaker vessels. So we are equal in creation, equal in salvation, differentiated in roles. There is equality and yet there is differentiation. And here's the equality. We are equal in creation and equal in salvation as of the grace of life. And so for Christian men, what is it we need to sort out? I think we need to sort out our duty and our ministry. Our duty and our ministry in listening to Peter is do regular Bible study. And maybe do regular wife study because we are supposed to live with them with knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge of God's blueprint for marriage, knowledge of the way God made women, knowledge of the sanctity of marriage is for permanence and don't let your eyes stray and don't let your heart stray. Could it be this? If it's true then, then maybe one day a week you set yourself that non-negotiable date with your wife and on that day, in your own devotion, in your own walk with God, you pray specifically for your wife. Give thanks to her. Step into her world. Don't step on her, on her toes. Step into the world. Incarnation. Understands where she came from. Understand what are her dreams. Understand what are her greatest triggers. What's her greatest fears? What are her greatest fears? What are her greatest sadnesses? Step into a world. Spend some time with that. Don't be so short with our God-given wives. With people out there, hello? When our wives speak, huh, what do you want? It's very short now, the conversation. Why? Why such nice, patient tones? Why were you willing to listen to somebody in your office for half an hour? You're such a good listener out there. But at home, Three minutes into a conversation with the wife, I, I, enough, 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 I, I, enough, I, 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 we cut them short. 
to live with understanding, to treat them with dignity, weaker vessels, co-heirs with us. And so that your prayers may not be hindered. How we treat our wives as husbands has vertical spiritual repercussions. And it may be that God disciplines us. If I'm ill-treating Mona, if you're ill-treating your wife, God disciplines us by not hearing your prayers and not answering your prayers. The things are not going well in your job. The things are not going well with your, your business. The things are not going well. Full stop. Did it ever cross your mind? Because? Because? of the way you are not treating your God-given wife rightly, handling her with care. And so there's spiritual warfare in our marriages and spiritual warfare in our families. You know what, how that looks like? We'll say more about it when we do this in, in September in the family series, in the identity series and the sexuality series. Our spiritual warfare in families is we've got to confess and repent of what? That day by day, we men may lead in daily, uh, you'll find your wives very annoying and daily pinpricks. We've got to confess and repent this subtle habit of mutual annoyance from breakfast to dinner to the bed where you lay your head down. And what else do we need to confess? Uh? Confess our double standards of domestic hatred that from every quarrel at home, we walk away very nearly convinced we are quite innocent. And sometimes our marriages have hit this rock. These two quotes are from C.S. Lewis. The screw tape letters, where the older demon is teaching the younger demon wormwood. This is how you get, you trap them in habits, ungodly habits every day, daily pinpricks, daily annoyance, daily irritation, and then petty quarrels, and each one of them walk away. Nothing lah, it's nothing. It's something, friends. And here are radical instructions given by the Apostle Peter that we are to live with our wives with understanding, with knowledge. We are to treat them with honour as the weaker vessel. And we are to do this because they are co-heirs with us of the grace of life. And we are to do this so that our prayers will not be hindered. So what happens when you put two very similar people together? What happens when you put two very different people together? What happens when you put a Christian wife and a Christian husband together? A Christian wife and a non-Christian husband together? Let's ask this more carefully. What happens when you put a woman and a man together under Christ? You find a woman can radically change to be willingly submissive. That she can, by the grace of God, focus on a gentle and a quiet spirit. She can submit by expressing it in obedience. And she does this to win the husbands over. When you put a man under Christ, you get a radically different husband. And what kind of husband? He's countercultural. He does Bible study, he does word study, and he does wife study. He lives with his wife with understanding. Understanding this is the way God wired her, and this is the way I should treat her, with dignity, with the utmost care, as a man responsible to God. 
And from that, you get a radically different marriage that bears, that imitates Christ and brings glory to God. Last week, our nation Singapore was hit with something that we have never experienced, where a 13-year-old boy who went to school was allegedly murdered by a 16-year-old schoolmate. I can't recall it ever happening in all the years of Singapore's history. And we are going to soul-search ourselves, and we should, all the way from our schools, all the way to our homes. There could be many contributing factors. Was mental unwellness part of it? Was bad marriages and dysfunctional families part of it? Everything could be a factor. We don't discount anything. We don't know yet. We may never know. But it should spur us to do what? There are things that we can learn when personal and national tragedies happen to us. And so I said to you, come September, will be a topical series beginning with a conference on identity, on family, on sexuality and purity. We're going to focus on this. What does it mean for us to be Christian husbands and wives? What does it mean for us to be Christian families, parents and children? We must arise, no matter what, the fallenness of this world. We must arise and be so different unto God. We must arise and be so different despite the sinfulness and brokenness of this world. And be unafraid, no matter what tragedies and what tragedies traumatize us. And so we've got to end our time with that. A song that declares, we've got to arise, O church. Hear the glorious gospel. Believe in Jesus. And when we bring Jesus into any area of our life, it changes everything in our life. Citizens to rulers, slaves to masters, wives to unbelieving husbands. Let's turn to God in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray and we plead that as the light of Jesus shines into our lives, we will indeed be born again. And may our born again lives be so different, not simply in identity, but different in godly living, the new habits. And so in hearing your word today, we ask, O Lord, for your empowerment by your spirit, enlightenment by your word. For wives to choose the right adornment, the adornment of a gentle and a quiet spirit, and increasingly wean ourselves of the cultural and the world's adornment of women, which in the end devalues us. We want to pray for our Christian women and our Christian wives to understand this more and more and be set free from the tyranny of a world that judges, values them wrongly. We pray for ourselves as Christian men, especially as Christian husbands, that as the light shines into our hearts, you will indeed empower us to live with our wives with knowledge, according to knowledge,
to treat them with dignity as the weaker vessel, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so we pray that in believing in you, our lives will be so different as a witness unto your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, we dare to ask. Amen. The Bible tells us not simply to be listeners of God's word, mere listeners, but to be doers of God's word. And so we're going to end our time by giving you three things to work on, maybe for the women, for the wives in our midst. What practical steps can you take to be more submissive to your God-given husbands? For the husbands, what practical, concrete steps can you take to live with our wives according to knowledge? to handle them with special divine care. A third reflection is maybe for children. In what ways can we, as children, younger, older teenagers, help mummy and daddy, mummy in her submission, and daddy in his godly love, and care of mum? In all of these ways, we pray not to be mere listeners of God's word, but doers of God's word. Thank you for joining us. We'll put these questions out for us to be reflecting on throughout the week. And if there's any help that you need in your journey, we're here to help you. Don't forget to sign up for Just for Newcomers. And don't forget to keep looking to Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.